Good morning. I'm Kenny, in case you are visiting this morning, one of our uh, elder team here. If you've been coming maybe recently, maybe a few Sundays, and you're wondering, who's in charge around this place? Uh, well, we have a team of elders, uh, pastors that, that lead, and so we actually share the teaching here from Sunday to Sunday. So if you're trying to get a beat on who's the guy, there's not one guy, but I'm one of the guys who's part of our elder team leading here, and it's my privilege to preach actually this morning. Uh, for you, we're in a series called Because He Lives, and uh, this is week two of that. And before diving into the passage that uh, I'm going to preach from this morning, I just wanted to say a, a word again about the four-week series, and one verse in particular uh, that was uh, inspiration for taking four weeks and doing this, and the verse is 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. 2 Timothy is a letter, probably the last letter that Paul wrote. Um, he was old. He was in prison. He'd suffered a lot for the sake of taking the gospel um, from city to city. Uh, and he's writing this letter to Timothy, who's a young pastor. And the, it's an encouragement letter to stay the course, to persevere, even though suffering will come, even though opposition will come, to hold fast and live for Christ and be a faithful minister of the gospel. So this is, a, this is a, 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 an urging um, to stay the course. And in 2 Timothy 2.8, as he's saying, Timothy, be like a farmer that works hard for the crop and a soldier who doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs. And he then says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. That verse reminds me, forever remind me now, of Narcissus Brashov, who's a member here at Grace. Uh, he used to be a core group leader for years in our student ministry. But uh, Narcissus, are you in here this service? No, maybe next service. Um, he grew up in a, a Romanian family with lots of brothers and sisters. And his dad, when they were in their teenage years and any of them would leave the house to go do something unsupervised, his dad would always say, remember Jesus Christ. And I asked Narcissus, well, what, what was his, well, you know, why, why that? And he said, I think my dad just thought rather than tell us all the things we shouldn't do when we go out of the house, he just thought, remember Jesus Christ covered it. You know, whatever you're doing out there that I don't see, if you're remembering Jesus Christ, you're probably good, right? Um, but remember Jesus Christ, what a great thing for us to say to ourselves every day, every time we go out the door. In our day-to-day, -day, remember Jesus Christ. The question is, uh, remember what about Jesus Christ? I'm curious, uh, this is rhetorical, I'm just gonna, but, but what images of Jesus most often come to your mind in your day-to-day -day life? Images from the gospel, um, pictures of Jesus. Maybe it's the Jesus who walked on water and calmed a storm with a word. Maybe that image is frequent in your mind. It's a reminder of the Jesus who has sovereign authority and he's more powerful than all the things you fear most. Maybe that's the Jesus that you remember. Maybe it's the touching lepers and eating with sinners Jesus that you think of. The Jesus who doesn't recoil from your sin in revulsion or roll his eyes at your foolishness, but with great compassion moves toward you and is willing to touch you and help you and heal you. Maybe it's the weeping at the tomb of Lazarus Jesus. And it reminds you that Jesus isn't indifferent toward your pain because he knows your pain and he's experienced it in a body on earth and he wept real tears, not just when Lazarus had died, but no doubt throughout his life as he saw the effects of sin in the world. 
Maybe it's the pierced for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities, Jesus. And it's the image of him on the cross saying, it is finished and breathing his last. Reminding you that he's the one who gave himself for you and drank the full cup of God's wrath toward your sin upon himself. We need these images of Jesus. We need to remember Jesus. It comforts us. It encourages us. It assures, reassures us. It convicts and challenges and calls us to live a life worthy, uh, worthy of the calling to which we've been called. But what about remembering the risen Jesus? Because that's where Paul went with Timothy. When Timothy, he says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, the next phrase is, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. In particular, Timothy, I want you to live with the risen Jesus Christ in view. Remember that the grave clothes are empty, the tomb is empty, and he is at the right hand of the Father in the seat of power and authority over all things. And one day, like we sang, all thrones before him are going to fall. Remember that, Jesus. And actually, I think if we remember the risen Jesus, it amplifies all those other images of Jesus, doesn't it? Because Jesus isn't the Jesus who did all those things and was all those things back then, but the Jesus of compassion and authority um, and mercy and sympathy is alive. He's that Jesus for us right now. So remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead is important for us. And so last week we began it with this. Eric started, because he he lives, we are born again. Jesus' resurrection, faith in him and the one who died for us and rose again, God then transforms us and our identity changes. Not just our name, but our, at our core. He makes us who were dead alive. He um, breaks the power sin had over us and releases us from it by giving us his spirit so that we can actually walk in new life. Eric said, born again is the only kind of Christian. A Christian in whom God has done a miracle and removed a heart of stone that was stubborn and bent toward the self and replaces with, with a heart of flesh that can feel the way we ought to feel about our sin and feel the way we ought to feel about righteousness and feel the way we ought to feel about God. Remembering Jesus Christ gives us resurrection assurance uh, or that, that we have power in him and our identity's changed. But this week, I want us to think about a, another change that's happened. Because Jesus lives, we are justified. Justified. Would you turn to Romans 4? Because we're going to jump in, I'm going to kind of jump in right at the end, the last two verses. Let me just give you a quick summary of what's come before this. In Romans 3 and 4, Paul is talking at length about this idea of being justified by faith. And we're going to talk about justification in a minute. But his point mainly is in 3 and 4, it is by faith for everyone. It's never by works. No one will stand justified in God's sight by their own works. It's always by faith, no exceptions. And to illustrate that, he goes all the way back to Abraham, to whom God first made a promise that through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world one day through one who's going to be born of your line. And he says, even with Abraham, he believed God and that faith was counted to him as righteousness. 
And Paul points to two examples where you can see his faith. And he says, Abraham believed when I told him that he would have a son who would be an heir and the one through whom all these promises would come, he believed me even though that he and Sarah were old and Sarah was barren. And later when Isaac was born and was a young man and God asks Abraham to do the unthinkable and offer his son as a sacrifice on the altar, even though he might, must have been scratching his head saying, what? He believed that God could even raise Isaac from the dead if that was his plan and he entrusted himself to God's plan. And Paul says that was counted to him as righteousness, his faith in who God is. All right, here's the on-ramp for us. Look at verse 22. Paul says, that's why his faith, Abraham's, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him weren't written for his sake alone, but for ours also. We have a stake in this. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Let's pray and talk about these things. Lord, we need your Spirit. Thank you, God, for pouring your Spirit in, into the hearts of each one of us here who has believed in what you've done for us in Christ. We thank you for all the... Um, the benefit that we just read that comes to us because we are justified. And we thank you for Jesus who died and rose that we might be justified. Spirit, help us understand these things in, in a way that, that it grips our heart, that it produces worship in our hearts and it produces worship in our lives lived. Please do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so th three points, which are three questions I want us to walk through. And the first one is pretty fundamental. What does it mean to be justified? We use this term a lot. Paul uses this term a lot in his letter uh, to the Romans, uh, a lot even in chapter 4, justified. It doesn't mean the way we often use it in English. The way we use it often in English is um, to, uh, we had a good reason for what we did. Like, I was justified when I honked at that guy that cut me off in traffic. He deserved it, right? I was justified in that. I was right in that. That's not the way Paul uses this word justified. He means it very specifically um, to describe our status in God's sight. It's a legal sort of term. Sort of in contrast to last week, born again is an identity term that God has fundamentally changed us. We are a new creation, born again. This is more of an external, a status word. It describes who we now are in God's sight how he views us. In fact, the word he keeps using, look at verse 24, is counted. It will be counted to us who believe in him. Counted. 11 times in chapter 4, he uses this word, counted to us. God is going to count something to us. What is he going to count? Two things. 
First of all, he's going to count us not guilty, even though we are guilty, every one of us in sin. The guilt of our sin is going to be removed. That's the first part of verse 25, because Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses. That's why God can count us not guilty, because Jesus paid for our guilt. If you weren't with us on Good Friday, Eric preached about guilt. And not just that it removes our guilty feelings, because as he pointed out, oftentimes we don't feel guilty when we are actually guilty. He removes the actual legal guilt that in God's sight stands against us, the record of debt that our sin deserves. And he removes that by giving his own uh, blood. Romans 3.25 says this, Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a sacrifice that removes wrath, allows God to be just and to punish sin, but it falls on Jesus and not us. And so that's why Paul can say he can count you now in Christ not guilty. But justified is more than not guilty. That's just half of the good news. He also now in Christ counts us as righteous. And I really want us to get this this morning. That by faith in Jesus, God counts you and me as righteous. Jesus' sinless obedience is counted as as if you are sinless and perfectly obedient. Like we sang. I don't know if you ever noticed, my hope is built on nothing less than two things, right? Than Jesus' blood and what? His righteousness. My hope's not all resting on his blood. That's only half of it. It's also resting on his righteousness. And in chapter 4, earlier in verse 5, he talks about this righteousness. Look at it in verse 5. He says, To the one who does not work, that's us, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted not just as not guilty, but as righteousness. In other words, Jesus' perfect record of righteousness is counted in the place of our absent record. We are the ones who do not work. We are not righteous. We have not lived a life over which God can say, that pleases me. Jesus did. And that is counted to us as righteousness. Let me give you an illustration. Last week, weekend, I got to uh, spend 36 hour, 30 hours or so with 23 other guys from Grace running this crazy relay race called Ragnar. Sorry for all of you who follow me and us on Facebook. We flooded your feed for like 30 hours with it. But it was really fun. We run from Huntington Beach to San Diego. 12 guys, actually we had 24 guys, four vans. Each person runs three times in a relay around the clock and then you end up in San Diego. It's a lot of fun. We actually paid to do that to ourselves. But... This is the fourth year we've done it. The last three years, we only had one team. Year two, in 2016, the night before, I'm out in the driveway with Lily Mae, and I'm decorating the windows of my Suburban with our team name, and I'm loading our water bottles and things into the back, and all of a sudden, I just felt that twinge in my lower back, and I knew what it was. If you've ever thrown your back out, I knew, oh, this is bad. Tried to walk it off. 20 minutes later, it was spasms. I was like flat on the couch, heat pad, and I'm calling my guy saying, I can't do it. There's, I, I can't even sit up without back spasms. And so here's what had to happen. Scott Rosencrans and Brian McDerris and Eric Twistleman were three other guys in my van. They each had to add one of my running legs to their own race. So they were already going to be running 14, 15, 16 miles. Each one of them had to add one of my legs to theirs. So they ran their whole race plus mine. 
Saturday comes. They all get back. They bring my Suburban back. And they handed me my medal. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's cool, but what am I supposed to do with this? I, I don't deserve this. I didn't even make it to the starting line. I mean, I wasn't there for, I wasn't even a driver, right, in the van. What am I going to do with this? And for a while, it just sat in my box of Ragnar gear. And I finally decided to hang it at my office as a reminder, as a, an example of what does it mean to be counted because of the merit of someone else. They ran the race. I got the medal. How cool is that? Well, it's even cooler with Jesus and counted as righteous because Jesus ran a perfect race. That's what the Bible says. He was sinless. He obeyed the Father's will at every step, every thought, attitude, action, word. His entire life was one that God could say, I am pleased with that. Our situation is worse than me with Ragnar because I wanted to be there. I wanted to run the race. It killed me to watch the Facebook pictures pop up all day while I was just sitting there on the couch. But with us and sin, we didn't even want to run the race. That's what the Bible says. None are righteous. Not one. We didn't care about that race. But Jesus came and ran the whole race for us and now God says that we can be dressed in his righteousness alone and in God's sight, it's like this. I'd hang it around my neck, but in the first service, I knocked my mic off. It's like this. Even though I feel like this shouldn't be around my neck, I did nothing. But that's the point. To the one who does not work but believes, it's counted as righteousness. And this is the way God sees me and you in him. One of the most beautiful descriptions of this idea of justification, being not guilty and righteousness, is found in the Heidelberg Catechism. I've read it here before, and it's worth reading again. Listen to this. Although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, I've never kept any of them, and I'm still, even this morning, inclined to evil, all evil. Let me get the next slide. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me, he counts as mine, the perfect satisfaction, that's the guilt taken away part, but also the righteousness and holiness of Christ. Get this. He grants these to me as if I'd never committed any sin and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. That's how God sees me, as if this belongs to me and I deserve it. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. That's the gospel. I just admit, didn't earn it. Never could. In fact, didn't want it. But Jesus, you earned it. And thank you, God, for counting that as mine. That's what it means to be justified. We're justified by faith in Christ and God who raised him from the dead. Question number two. So if the basis of our justification is the cross and Jesus' sinless life, why in verse 25 here does Paul say that Jesus was raised for our justification? That's a little weird, isn't it? We would expect him to say something like, delivered up for our trespasses and crucified for our justification, right? But he says here, raised for our justification. So question two is, how does Jesus' resurrection contribute to our justification. Why is it that Jesus had to die and rise in order for me to be justified? Or to put it another way, if Jesus hadn't risen but just died on the cross in my place, why would we not be justified? 
I think there's two reasons that the resurrection completes the package of being justified by faith. First is this, it guarantees that the righteousness counted to us is a perfect righteousness. It's complete. There's nothing left to be done. Look at this. This is a parallel sort of passage or idea in 1 Corinthians 15, connecting Jesus being raised with our justification. And Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So obviously the death on the cross wasn't enough for you to be uh, out of your sins, but if he wasn't raised, you'd still be in them. The resurrection attests that Jesus' own righteousness is perfect. In in a book called Raised with Christ, written by Adrian Warnock, he's a pastor in the UK, um, he talks about this and he said something I read this week that I'd never thought about it in these terms before, but I thought it was helpful. He says that not only can could Paul have said, which he did, that we, uh, he was, Jesus was raised for our justification. He says Jesus was also raised for his own justification. And that might sound strange, so let me, let's hear him out. He says, it may sound strange to talk about Jesus' need for justification, but justification is a declaration and a vindication. The resurrection of Jesus has evidencing power. It says something or attests to something, in other words. Jesus is declared to still be righteous by his resurrection. Just as he was declared to have become sin by his death, God's wrath has been satisfied. So I think it declares a couple of things about Jesus when God raised him from the dead. One, even though God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, God put the sin of the world on him. Jesus became uh, uh, ugly in God's sight, hideous in God's sight because of our sin. Even though that's true, the resurrection says to us that God accepted that payment, his death in our place in full by raising him from the dead. There's nothing left to be done, in other words, it says to us. It also says that Jesus is righteous on his own merits. That's what I said on Easter Sunday, that, uh, that Jesus' uh, resurrection says death didn't have a claim over him. Death couldn't hold him because he had no sin. Not only was all the sin that God put on him removed so that he, he could be raised from the dead, but he himself is righteous and didn't deserve to be left in the grave. And so God raised him from the dead. And both these things come together to remind us of this, that there's nothing left to be done. It's a complete righteousness. There's nothing we add to it, nothing we can do to take away from it. It's complete. It's whole. Would you look at the the image on your bulletin cover or just look at the image up here? I want to point out a detail that I asked Cliff Cramp, who painted this, it's beautiful, to, to add in this picture because it's a little detail from John's gospel and it's that little cloth that's folded neatly in a pile to the side. John is the only one in his gospel who points this out. Listen, then Simon Peter came to the empty tomb following him and he went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. There's something about that folded up I just love. Mary raised him right, right? He folded it up, sort of like making his bed before he leaves, right? There's something so finished about it. Think about of all the burial cloths, the one that really vividly depicts death it's the face cloth, right? I mean, you picture how many times in a, in a movie or something you've seen at a crime scene or on a hospital table when someone's pronounced dead, they pull the, 
the cloth up over the face, over their eyes and their mouth. They don't see anymore. They're not going to speak anymore. It's so final, isn't it? The image of a face cloth being wrapped. And Jesus comes to life, gets up, takes his own burial cloths off and takes the time to fold up the face cloth and just set it there. It's like, I don't need that anymore. It's only two days use. Someone else can have that. It's like hand-me-downs, right? Here, I'm just going to leave that right here. It's an image of the finishedness, nothing else to, to be done. And he walks out of the empty tomb. Just as a side note, I was thinking about the folded grave clothes and the fact that we have died with Christ to sin. And it struck me, we need to think about sin now in our lives like that cloth. We don't need that anymore. We died to that with Jesus. Why on earth would we put that on again? Jesus has new clothes for us to wear. Righteousness. We've died to that. So Jesus' resurrection guarantees a complete righteousness in God's sight that we don't add to or can't take away from. But the second thing the resurrection uh, guarantees in our justification is that this righteousness is counted to us is eternal. It's never ending. It's never going anywhere. And it's right where it needs to be. Later in Romans 8, Paul says this, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. He's more than that. He's also the Jesus who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You know what's more important than the, the fact that the tomb is empty is where Jesus is right now. Like Caleb said, when we remember Jesus Christ risen, that's great to remember the empty tomb, but only as a pointer to the throne that Jesus now and forever occupies. And he's there perfectly righteous, and God is counting that righteousness that's right before the face of God as ours this moment where you sit. John Bunyan wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Maybe you've read. He also wrote a book that was his sort of recounting of, of his sort of uh, tumultuous uh, journey from sin to finding Christ. And in it, he describes a moment of clarity that he got when it suddenly landed on his heart. What does this mean that God counts the righteousness of Jesus for him? Listen to this. He said, one day I was passing in a field with some dashes on my conscience. That's sort of a nice way of saying I was feeling guilty. My sin was in my mind. And I was fearing lest yet all was not right between me and God. Suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God couldn't say of me, he wants or lacks my righteousness for that was just before him. It's right in front of his face, he's saying. And I also saw, moreover, that it wasn't my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better or my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. My righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why does the resurrection and remembering the risen Jesus remind us of our justification? Because it reminds us our righteousness isn't going anywhere Here's, what, here's the effect that had on his heart. He said, now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my affliction and irons. My temptations also fled away. 
In other words, this, this led to joyful obedience for him so that from that time, the, those dreadful scriptures of God that he felt were hanging over him like a word of judgment. He says, they left off troubling me and I went home also rejoicing for the grace and love of God. That should make us leave this place this morning rejoicing for the grace and love of God if we get what that means for us. What does it mean for us right now today that God sees you as not guilty and with the perfect righteousness of Christ? That's question three. What does our justification mean for us right now? That's where Paul runs in chapter five in the first five verses. And he hits at least four Amazing truths that become true of us because we are justified. And I want to hit them briefly. Number one, we have peace with God. That's what verse one says. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We all know what it feels like not to be at peace with someone else, don't we? We know both sides of that coin. I do. I know what it feels like to have someone and they're ticked off at me. I did something Maybe I deserved it. Maybe I didn't, but usually I did. <laughs> I said something, I did something, and we're not all good. And I can feel it. Maybe I can't see it on their face, but I can tell I'm in the doghouse. I'm not talking about Betsy right now, by the way, in case you're thinking that's where I'm hinting, although I'm probably put myself in the doghouse with her many a times. But we know that feeling, right, of feeling like we're not at peace. We walk on eggshells. And we try to make up for it and we feel guilty. I think we also know the other side of that. We've all done that to someone, haven't we? We got ticked off and probably most often uh, it's blown out of proportion and we think we're justified and maybe we're not. But either way, we're just going to let that person know we're not good. You know that feeling? I think we can project that onto God. Because when, like John Bunyan, when I'm, my conscience is dashed and I'm very aware of my sin, it can be hard for me to not, to not imagine that God is the same way, that we're not good. But raised for our justification says to me, despite my feelings, that if I'm dressed in Christ's righteousness, which is complete and eternal, that I am not in God's doghouse. You are not in God's doghouse this morning. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't care about your sin. He's not content to leave you in it. Your sin, our sin can still grieve him. He is jealous that we turn from sin and put it to death and walk in the new life that he has for us. And his spirit brings conviction for our sin, the right sort of wrong feeling we should have about our sin. But nevertheless, we don't do all that to reestablish peace with God because it got disconnected this week and I've got to reestablish it. It's finished. So I want to say to you this morning, on behalf of God, you have peace with him in Christ. Believe it. Second thing that we have because we're justified we're standing in his grace. Look at the beginning of verse two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Access means we've been granted admission somewhere that before we didn't belong or we weren't welcome. And now, by faith, we have access. It got me thinking of a story that I like to tell. In 2012, one morning, I was, had just gotten to my office and I get a call from Brian Peterson. If you know Brian Peterson, he was here for many, many years as a member and worked here on staff. And, and he called me and said, hey, 
Coldplay is playing at the Hollywood Bowl tonight. And I am going during the day to interview the guy who runs all the sounds, sort of the back of the house guy, because the equipment he uses is from a company that I, I represent. So I'm going to go and interview him for about an hour and get some video to put together. And he said I could bring a couple of guys along to help me, right? So he called me and Jonathan Foster, and we were like, we dropped everything and we, and we go and we get down there and it's the middle of the day. No one's there except for him. And we set up tripods and I just stand there looking like I know, I know what I'm doing. All I really did was just carry the gear in. An hour gets by and it's done and there was no promises of anything more than that. But we get to the end and the guy says to Brian, so, I mean, if you guys want to stick around for the show tonight, that, that's fine. Do you? And we're like, oh, I hadn't even thought about it. But I mean, I, you know, I guess, you know. <laughs> The whole time I'm like, please, 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 please. And so he pulls out these three yellow bracelets and he gives them to us and it says all access on it at the Hollywood Bowl. I'd never been to the Hollywood Bowl until 2012. And all of a sudden I have this yellow bracelet that says all access. And it was still hours till the opening band. And, and so he says, so yeah, while you wait, uh, there's food back there. There's a room over here. I'll show you where it is. And you can go eat, eat in there and just hang out and walk around and, and enjoy. And then he leaves. And Brian and Jonathan just, and I just look at each other. We're like, let's go. Let's go find this room. So we found the room. And this is the sign on it. Coldplay Friends and Family. And there's all these like platters of sushi and sandwiches and really good food and stuff to drink and desserts and cheesecakes. No one's in there. Comfy leather couches. And we just plop down. We just fill up our plate with sushi. I've cleared off half that plate of sushi right there. We're just enjoying ourselves. Uh, and then we walked around backstage. All those people pay money, we just came with Brian. That was it. We just came with Brian. After that video, I put my phone in my pocket and I just walked out onto the stage while it was in the middle. You know, they were doing sound check and getting stuff before the band. I just stood there looking out. I was like, this is amazing. Why am I telling you this? Because all I had to see was all access on that bracelet. I was taking full advantage. I wasn't waiting for someone to say, hold on, you're not supposed to go in there. I just was like walking around like this. Like, I... I belong here. I have the yellow bracelet. I love this term. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What grace? Well, not only is God graciously working in all the details of our life in a thousand ways that we're not even aware of to bring about good endings for us in our life, but there's also grace that we can see. We have access to talk to our creator anytime. He listens so we can pour out our hearts at length. We can go on and on. We can ramble. He's okay with that. We can cast our cares on him because he cares for us. We can ask him to do great things, things that we think, imagine could never happen because he wants to do things like that. Save people that you don't think ever would humble themselves and trust Jesus. He wants us to ask. We're standing in grace. The question is, are we taking advantage? Are we making use of it? Or are we sort of standing back, oh, I'm not so sure with this. But if we know we have peace with God, then we know that this means all access. We have God's written living word that he says his Holy Spirit will use to make us by degrees actually righteous like the righteousness with which we're covered in Jesus. 
that he'll help us grow to be more like Jesus. Are, are we taking advantage of this like, like I was backstage just saying, I, I want it all? We have the body of Christ, the church. Do we treat it as something good for, you know, once a month if it fits with my schedule? Or do we see this as the grace of God that I have access to? Holy Spirit dwells in all these other people. And God wants to work through them for my good and speak through them so that I might hear sometimes words that were, are encouraging to me, sometimes words that are hard for me to hear, but nevertheless, for my good. Are we making use of the grace in which we stand because we have access? The question is, what are we doing with it? We're standing in grace. Third thing is we have a hope of glory worth boasting about. Look at the end of verse two. He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope of the glory of God. A certainty that one day future, there will be glory that we have not seen yet. We will see God. Revelation 22 says there will be no need of sun or moon because the Lord will be the light in that new heavens and new earth where we live. We will see him. Next week, Jackson's going to take this up. Week three, because he lives, we will rise again. Part of the hope of glory is that we will be glorious. God will take our unglorious bodies right now, make them imperishable and our hearts undivided so that we can be with him in perfect union and fellowship forever. More to come next week. Come back. But that word rejoice really means boast. We boast in the glory of God. This hope of the glory of God is worth boasting about. Do we boast about it? Let's be a people who boasts about it. And last is this. This deserves a whole other sermon, but I got one minute, so I'm just going to sum it up like this. We can rejoice in our suffering because we're justified. Being justified, knowing for sure that I am not guilty and I am righteous in God's sight can actually lead to rejoicing in suffering. Same word, boast. We can boast in our suffering, which sounds so strange. But in a nutshell, here's why we can boast according to these three verses. Because all our sufferings are not pointless. But when it comes to God and his design and his wisdom and his, and his kindness, he brings suffering and trials into our life for a purpose to bring about this, this sort of chain reaction that he talks about right here. He says because suffering produces endurance, it, it forces us to, to, to exert that muscle of faith when resistance comes and we entrust ourselves to God in that and then he proves faithful which strengthens our faith and emboldens us to ask and lean into him even more in the suffering. And this whole process then, he says, leads to producing character this process of, of exercising faith and trust in him in the face of suffering actually begins to transform us and, and bring us into alignment with the righteousness that God already sees us with. And then he says, and this character produces hope as we see this happening. And God is at work in us. It declares to us, this is real. God really has saved me. I am justified and he is working in my life. And it's evidence that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Which means we can rejoice, we can boast even in our sufferings. God, help us to do that. That is not easy. So we need to pray about some of these things. I want to ask you to bow your heads for a minute and pray. These things need to be controlling realities for us. For me, we have to admit they're not we have peace with God. We're standing in his grace. We have great hope of glory. 
He has purposes in our suffering, but still we struggle. Even this week, maybe you've felt like you are still under the shadow of God's condemnation, and that lies about God and his grace. Maybe you need to confess that to him. Maybe you've, you've, just, you've just left all the means of grace at your disposal unused and to your uh, detriment. And you need to ask God this week to draw you to those means of grace and to, to, to fill you, to help you grow through those. Maybe you need to bring whatever fill, you fill in the blank, you're suffering right now, and ask God to help you to see your wise, sovereign, gracious hand behind it and to entrust yourself to him. So take a minute, and then we're going to finish with some extended time singing about these things.